This evening we find our way at sort of the midpoint, just a little ways beyond the midpoint of the book of Hosea, Hosea's prophecy. We're in chapter 8, and uh, we'll be looking at all 14 verses of Hosea chapter 8. Israel has forgotten his maker. We'll read all of these verses now as an act of worship to our gracious God who's given us and preserved all of these words. Set the trumpet to your lips. One, like a vulture, is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt." For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you for this evening's service of worship. We thank you for these difficult words And we ask that you would have your way in us this evening. And let us all consider our own ends so that we may make a right use of the time that we have. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the difficult things about Hosea's prophecy is it's sort of like reading similar words over and over and over again. You've probably noticed that. It seems like how can you you develop a new sermon out of words that seem just to reiterate what we've heard over the last seven? And while I won't lie to you, it is a little bit difficult to find new topics to talk about. 
Uh, but there is something that we ought to consider here. There's a reason why God is saying these words to Israel over and over and over again. And, and one of the, uh, the logical reasons may be that, that he's saying these words to Israel at different periods in their life. He is, he's coming in at a certain moment. Hosea is inspired by the Lord and saying these things to them again, giving them yet another opportunity to repent. And that's the way that the Lord's mercy works, isn't it? He does come to us over and over and over with overtures of love. And when we come to the end of our lives, and if, if he says to us, you didn't repent, you didn't turn to me, it won't be because of a lack of opportunity. Hosea, here is God's prosecution against those who are in covenant with him. As we open the book of Hosea, and we, we, we come to the completion of the Hosea um, issue with his uh, adulterous wife and we enter into God's prosecution it is as though we open the doors to a courtroom and there we see God as judge and God as the prosecutor he is the one who's pacing back and forth on the courtroom floor announcing Israel's guilt he's bringing it to their attention He's reminding them that there's no escape from judgment everything that I bring against you is true and so for us, it is, it is in some way a preview of God's judgment against the privileged. It is a preview of God's judgment against the privileged. Well, what do you mean? You, you mean a, a preview of God's judgment against the rich? That, that's how some would say it, right? Uh, those who are rich in this world will be judged uh, differently. Well, no, not necessarily. But, but we ought to understand that this is a, not a message to the unbeliever, is it? Who's being prosecuted here? Who is on trial? Well, it's God's covenant people. That is such an important point. The covenant people of God are sitting in the defendant's chair, listening to him prosecute them. This is a message to those who profess faith in the living God. To those who are invested with the oracles of God, who are partakers of His ministry of mercy, who have been privileged to be brought up in the promised land, as it were, who've been taught to sing all of the songs of Jerusalem. Yet even what they have from God has become corrupt and unacceptable to the Lord. And so the first thing that he teaches us here in verses 1 through 3 is that uh, covenant breakers receive covenant curses. Covenant breakers receive covenant curses. Uh, notice that in these first few verses, and we're going to look uh, kind of in a, uh, throughout this passage, uh, but, but Hosea, God speaking with Hosea, is using the language of covenant curse. And using this language, he declares judgment against Israel. And we, here we have to go back in the history of Israel a little bit and reflect on how the Lord has set before Israel a path, as it were. 
We, we talked this morning and we've been talking about how Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount again is talking to Israel with similar language. He's saying to them, there, is, there are two paths set before you, O Israel. Which one will you choose? The narrow path of the Lord or the broad path? Jesus did not invent language there. He's not inventing new teaching. This is the same language that the God of the covenant presented to Israel even in the book of Deuteronomy. God set before them the path of life. Do the things of the covenant, Israel, and it will go well with you. Look, I'm leading you into bountiful cities. You're going to drink from wells that you did not dig. You're going to live in houses that you did not build. You're going to drink wine that you did not ferment. All of these things I'm going to give you freely. But you must walk in faithfulness with me. Do not turn, in other words, the grace of God into a reason to do your own thing. Well, what did they do? They turned the grace of God into a, mean, a, a reason for licentiousness. They became a covenant-breaking nation. And so as a nation, Israel forsook God. They turned away from him and inherited his curse. So here, uh, God is speaking with, uh, with Hosea. Notice, notice what he says to Hosea. Set the trumpet to your lips in verse 1. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my, my, my law. What's that picture here? Well, God is calling on Hosea to lift up his voice like a trumpet. Literally, in the Hebrew, it is the term shofar. And you know that the shofar, uh, sometimes translated in our English versions as a trumpet, this was a horn that was used to call Israel. They were gathered as a camp. Uh, they were told when to set out as a camp and when to make camp, when to gather together. They were told when to go out to war or when to gather for a festival by the sounding of the shofar. Well, here, Hosea is to lift up his voice like a trumpet. Only notice that he is not calling Israel this time. Instead... Hosea is lifting up his voice as a trumpet to call the nations to descend upon Israel like a vulture on a carcass. This too is a picture of God's covenant curse against his people. In Deuteronomy 28, 49, listen to what the Lord proclaimed against Israel. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. So you see, here from the very outset, the Lord has explicitly told Israel what would happen to them if they failed to walk in His statutes. They are a people who've been given knowledge. 
And all they had to do was walk in this knowledge. Well, what happened? Well, they didn't do it. And so what happened? The eagle comes. The eagle is coming upon them. John Calvin notes, he, he says, that you don't see the eagle uh, from far away, but suddenly it's upon you and you don't know it and it, it sweeps you up. Well, the same thing would happen to Israel. And so notice how the Lord will judge them in verse 3. Israel has spurned the good and the enemy shall pursue him. And notice in verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. The, the, the picture is totally reversed. On the one hand, God told Israel, I'm going to take you into a place. I'm going to give you the promised land. You're going to dispossess all of these people, and it's going to be yours, O Israel. That's why we reflected on the preface to the Ten Commandments this morning. Why is it so important? Well, because the preface there, before God ever gave them the law, he said, I have redeemed you. I've brought you to myself in Exodus chapter 19. On the wings of eagles, I brought you to myself. Well, what has happened? Israel's forgotten her maker. And now... The Lord judges them. He judges them in the beginning with war. He's bringing an enemy against them. And we know that this will be the Egyptians. It will be the Assyrians. They will sweep into Samaria and they will leave no stone unturned. It's going to look like the heaviest plague of locusts you've ever seen. They will eat the grass. They're going to eat all, every blade of grass. And when there's no blades of grass left, they're going to eat the dust. I will burn your cities to the ground. But God doesn't just judge them by war. He, he judges them through famine and futility. Look at verse 7. We see Israel, and God gives us the picture of Zoe, a farmer who's going out to sow seed. But Israel are not sowing zucchini. They are sowing judgment against themselves. Verse 7, for they sow the wind... And they reap the whirlwind. They reap the hurricane. It comes against them. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour. Israel swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. What's the picture here? Well, in the Jewish mindset, what's happening here is God is causing all of their work to come to nothing. Yes, the picture is a famine. But the real picture is, Israel, remember, the only reason that you, you harvest a harvest is because my hand has been with you. But now my hand is against you. And so all of your work will come to nothing. We think about the curses in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? Where there God said that the earth is going to be set against you. Well, he's reiterating all of this again. War, famine, and futility of labor is what Israel will now inherit because of her sin. Notice that, notice that God's judgment against his people here in, in this life is from real personal events. Some of them would look upon Assyria coming. They would, they, they would look upon a famine. They, they would look upon the futility of their labor. And, and they would just say, oh, this is just from natural processes. 
But what you and I notice, because we read this carefully, is that these are exhibitions of God's judgment against his people. Why is there war? Because God's not happy. Why is there famine? Because God is angry. And you and I should be careful also not to discount evil in this world as random, as mere natural processes. It was fascinating to me as COVID was just sort of hitting the radar back in 2019. It began in China, as as far as we understood. It began in China, and it was fascinating to me to think about how a nation that has built army upon army that has built itself as strong, would be brought to its knees by a tiny microscopic being. Well, where does this come from? Why are these things in the world? Why why, why is Russia coming against the, the Ukraine? Because God is angry. We are not at peace with the Lord. And in Romans chapter 1, we read that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. When we experience war, famine, and disease, our minds must go to God. Remember, at the beginning of the last chapter, what did Israel say? He has torn us. He will bind up our wounds. God is speaking in all of these things. In the coronavirus in war, in famine. God is speaking. And you and I must be faithful to listen to him. Israel weren't. They weren't faithful. They said, oh, we'll get over this. It's going to go away. The Lord's going to come along at some point and wipe all of these things out. We're going to be just fine. But they weren't listening to the message. They weren't listening to the prophets. They weren't listening to the ones that God sent to them. And that is why when we read these words, it looks a lot like a nasty divorce proceeding. Why does it look that way? Well, it looks that way because God's relationship with his people is a covenantal union. But why do we speak of these things in terms of a courtroom scene? Why are we talking about defendants and judges and plaintiffs and all of these things? Well, because God's relationship to you is a legal contract. It is a covenant. And God has always related to his people in the form of a covenant. You know that he bound himself to Adam in the form of a covenant, a promise. Adam, Adam, I will uphold you forever and ever in righteousness if you don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that temporary test, God boiled down a whole lifetime of obedience to a moment in Adam failed. And why? Why do we suffer? Why does the world suffer for Adam's disobedience? Well, because it's a covenant. Adam represented the whole human race. And you and I fell when Adam fell. But as we think about this moment in redemptive history, we remember that God was pleased to enact a second covenant. And this time, he enacted that covenant with Christ. The second Adam, the moment that Adam fell, God enacted a second covenant 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. A, a gracious covenant. That is the reason that Adam, by the way, named his wife Eve. The mother of the living Because Adam was trusting in the gracious nature of that second covenant. You and I know the blessings of this covenant now, not because we fulfill it perfectly as Adam had to do, but because Christ has fulfilled all of the conditions of that covenant for us. We walk in the blessings of that covenant. We receive the blessings of that covenant, not through work, but through faith. But here's the point. Israel had the same covenant of grace. The same Christ that fulfilled all of the conditions of that covenant in our place fulfilled it for them too. But here's what we remember. That union with Christ does not nullify the need for active obedience on our part. That's one of the things that Christ has been emphasizing to us in the Sermon on the Mount. But the understanding, do you see, changes. Why am I obedient to Christ? Why do I pursue holiness and piety in my own life? Well, because I look to the preface of the Ten Commandments. God has done something for me. He's redeemed me. I was a slave and He brought me out of slavery to sin and He's made me free. I obey Him, looking to the preface. He's delivered me now. Our obedience and pursuit of personal righteousness, by those things we show that we possess the Holy Spirit of God who is the seal of our inheritance. So we remember that we, some of us were were born into the church, but we remember that, that that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't mean that we have a, a privilege apart from obedience. We have to look to Israel. They were covenant breakers. And they inherited the curses of that covenant. Their, their disobedience to the Lord brought upon them a very real judgment from Him. The second thing that we notice is that we break the covenant of God. When we do the right things in the wrong way. That's going to take a little bit of explaining. We break God's covenant when we do the right things in the wrong way. There's, there are parts of Hosea here that should really make our hearts shudder a little bit. Israel did not stop being a religious nation. Israel did not stop sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats. Israel did not stop observing certain ceremonial days. Israel did not disband the priesthood. Israel did not tear down the temple. They kept all of the trappings. If you walked through Israel, it it would have felt very religious, maybe like the south. 
And yet, with all of those things in place, Israel's heart turned away from the Lord their God and they inherited His curse. Notice a few false things that Israel did. First, they had false kings. Notice in verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. This is a reflection on the history of Israel. Remember, if we went back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I'll encourage you to do that. There was a moment when Samuel, the last judge, was getting old, and Samuel's sons did not follow in Samuel's ways. They were wicked men. And the people said, Samuel, we need a king. And so Samuel went and in verse uh, 6 and 7 of 1 Samuel 8, he prayed, Lord, what do I do? And God responded and he said, give them a king. But it's interesting, the Lord's response is he said, give them a king because they have rejected me as king. And so that's where we began and As we get to Hosea's day, they have several kings. Hezekiah in the southern kingdom. But Jeroboam in the the northern kingdom. And these were unfaithful kings. And their kings were not known by the Lord. They didn't consult with the Lord. And we remember, what's the whole history? How did they choose kings? Well, who's the tallest? Who's the best looking? Who has the lineage? And God didn't know their kings. So they had false kings. Kings, not godly kings who read the law, as we talked about this morning. They had false ones. Next, they had false idols. Notice in verses 5 and 6. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. What is from Israel? The calf. You made it. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. This requires us to do just a little bit of history work here. We have talked about this before. But remember when Jeroboam became the king, there was that moment when the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, was tested by the people. Your father was mean to us, will you be kind? And all of Solomon's advisors said, answer them that you're going to be kind to them Rehoboam. And Rehoboam did what? He went to his high school buddies. What do y'all think I should do? We think you ought to threaten them. Tell them you're going to be even meaner. Well, the people naturally said, well, we're, we're not going to go with you, Rehoboam. We're going to go with Jeroboam instead. And we have this, this instance in, so the ten tribes went with Jeroboam and there was a division. This is when it became the north and the south. And here's what Jeroboam did. Then Jeroboam, the king of the northern ten tribes, built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, listen to how wise he is, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. They're going to reject me and go to Rehoboam. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel. 
who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so he made two calves. And he set one in Dan, and he set one in Beersheba. One in the very northern part of the kingdom, and one in the very southern part of of the kingdom in the land of Ephraim. So that the people would not go down to the temple. Instead, they would worship in the north. And what does God say to them in Hosea 8? Your kings have led you astray. You set up false kings, and they have set up for you false idols. And so the whole northern kingdom, the northern, think about this, the northern kingdom was established in idolatry. False kings, false idols, and lastly, false sacrifices, verses 11 to 13. Read this carefully. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. You, you, You see what's happening here. They've got all the trappings. They have it all. They, they come to the priest. They offer him the lamb. They offer him the bull. They offer him the goat. There's the blood letter. He lets the blood, he, op- he, he cuts it in pieces, he lays it on the altar. It's, it's offered up for, for them. They do all the right things. And yet God is rejecting them. As, as I read this, I think, how, how do we apply this in our present moment? How do we look back on Hosea And look at this people and think about the Samaritans, the northern kingdom. What relevance does that have for Brian McCullough today? How does this apply in our moment in redemptive history? How does the story of the northern kingdom's ruin, how does the story of the northern kingdom's ruin, how does it have relevance to the church of today? Here's how we bring it forward. Remember that God is not speaking to a heathen nation. The story would be totally different if if Hosea was called, maybe uh, uh, like Jonah, to go to Nineveh, right? Remember, Jonah went to Nineveh. Nineveh didn't have the oracles of God. They didn't have the altars. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the priests. They had none of that. They weren't God's chosen people, but God sent Jonah to them. Israel's not that. They have the prophets. God has raised up faithful judges to proclaim to them the word of God. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They have David as king. They have men who've declared God's word to them. They are the church of Jesus Christ under age. They're not heathens. We think about a child who's born into a covenant home. This is what it, how we ought to think of this. You think of a child who's born in a covenant home. What do, we, what do we mean by that? Well, your parents are believers. They catechize you from a young child. They teach you to obey the Lord. You've got family worship, a family altar in your home. The Bible is open and read. When you come for counsel, the Bible is open. You're counseled from God's word. You receive instruction in the word and you profess faith at some point, just just as the Israelites did. 
But if that child comes to a point where he, he trusts in his church membership, or he, or he as sometimes you're instructed to do, look back at that moment when you professed faith, that should be your assurance of a future salvation. If that child trusts in his church membership, but does not produce the fruits of holiness, his religion is worthless. You can look, what's the point of the sacrifice and the whole system? God's given you his law. He wants you to obey the law, display your love for him by obeying him. But because you're not going to do that perfectly, you're going to need to, uh, to trust in the righteousness of another. So I give you the sacrificial system. And Israel had turned that gracious system into a, a means for disobeying the Lord. It teaches us that there are two things that are abominable in God's sight. One, doing all the right things with no love to Christ. It's coming to New Covenant Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning. Opening up the bulletin and saying, okay, we've got the call to worship, we've got prayer, we've got the confession of sin, we've got the assurance of pardon, we're going to collect the offering, there's going to be a sermon, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, and because I go through all those things, I'm acceptable in the Lord's sight. But there's no love. You don't love Him. There's no affection, no zeal. This was Israel. They had all these trappings, but they didn't desire the Lord. They didn't care for his glory. In fact, they were willing to accept the gods of other nations. The first thing that we ought to notice is that, the, that doing all the right things with no love to Christ is abominable. And the alternative is true too. All the right affection with no attention to the commands. You know, there are lots of people who have religious zeal. Let me just put it a little more finer, a little finer. There are lots of people who profess faith in Christ who have a lot of religious zeal and yet do not take the time to determine if that zeal is godly or not. I was standing in a church office a few years ago and a, a lady came in and we were, it, it was that moment when there was a video circulating online of a big PCA church in New York City that had a male uh, dance team on a Sunday morning for worship. These men had leotards on and the whole thing. And we that got into a discussion, well, can, should you have dance teams in church? And, and one of the ladies in there said, well, if, if, it is, if you're sincere about doing it, then God accepts it. Whatever we do in sincerity is acceptable to God. And to that, I think Hosea would answer, those are famous last words. Remember, Jesus said to the woman at the well, we worship in spirit and in truth. We cannot get to the place where we think that just because we do it in the right spirit, that God's just going to accept it. That's exactly what Nadab and Abihu thought in Leviticus 10 when the fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. 
They had all the right trappings, but they did it in the wrong way. Worship is central to God. He cares about His worship, so much so that He commands you to do it. And we have to have two concerns if we are to remain faithful to Him and not become like the Israelites who were covenant breakers. One, to ask the Lord to fan our hearts to a flame for Him, not to go through these things cold, to be satisfied with cold hearts that just because we can tick off the boxes that we did the wrong things, we, we, didn't, we don't have none of those lights. We don't have fog machines. Our pastor doesn't ride in on a Harley Davidson, okay? We're good. But you can have all the right things and not have a heart for the Lord and be abominable. And the alternate is true too, that you can have a great heart, but if you're not obedient to the Lord, that too is wickedness. In Christ Jesus, we, we revel in the grace of God, but, but grace must never become a justification for licentious living in our lives. We have to remember that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Remember that? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And that doesn't mean that we're not to go out into the world. It, it didn't mean for Israel that they weren't to live alongside the Philistines. There were foreigners who lived in the land of Israel. What it means is it doesn't have a place in your home. And it doesn't have a place in the gathered body of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I can't help but read these words and think about how foolish we are. Lord, we are foolish people. We, we don't know your word well enough. We are not wise enough. We don't have enough knowledge. We don't have enough understanding. So we confess in this moment our total dependency upon you. Lord, we ask you in Christ Jesus, keep us from error. We ask that you would keep us in faithfulness to yourself. Give us a zeal for righteousness. Our hearts, don't let them become cold and stale like salting crackers sitting in these pews. Let there be a vibrancy here, a true and a sincere love for Christ. And we confess, we can't stir this up within ourselves. We need you to do it. And so we plead with you through Jesus Christ to keep us faithful. Keep us in the narrow road. For the sake of your glory, we ask it. Amen. A closing hymn this evening is